I want to tell you about a man who was both endearing and alienating. His name was Adam Onslow Isaacson, and by trade, he was an actor. He'd started acting in plays when he was a young boy, playing the titular child in the play Heaven's Child to great acclaim, and his cherubic features and angelic voice made him incredibly famous for the short period of his life before puberty stretched him, face and limb. His warden was always a great support to him. She took him to acting classes, dance and vocal lessons, and using the money he earned during the run of the play, which was quite a substantial amount, she hired private tutors to provide him a liberal education. He'd grown up between world wars, a very singular time in the history of his craft, for it was the first time in history that a performance could be experienced by an entire country simultaneously. And while he underwent the awkward transformation from boy to man, and his body and face reflected that metamorphosis. His voice remained a compelling and sonorous trait. He dropped from his angelic soprano to being a remarkable tenor, though he could dip into baritone if it were called for. It was that voice of his that provided for his continued success in an industry that is often unkind to maturation. For the stage was no longer the only venue by which an actor could make a living. It was on the radio, which was enjoying total dominance over the entire country as the only device which could carry a single voice from coast to coast that Adam was able to put his gifts to good use. <laughs> you know, there was a period of time after the end of the Second War that any night of the week one could find Adam's voice somewhere on the dial. His fame exploded, making any fame he possessed as a child seem quaint by comparison. It seemed like everyone in the country had his voice in their ears and his name on their lips. However, one thing they didn't have were pictures of him. During his uh, awkward phase, he began the practice of not allowing his picture to be taken. He hated his disproportionate face, how his nose seemed to loom too large over his slit of a mouth, and the pimples that stippled his skin. These were all things that were finally balanced as he crossed the threshold to manhood, but even though he'd reached maturity, sloughing off the awkwardness like a snakeskin, he maintained his practice of secrecy. My voice is what people love. You can't take a picture of a voice, he'd say, when one of those closest to him, his warden or his talent agent, would ask him again why he shied away from the spotlight. And this went on for the better part of five years, and only increased his fame. He began wearing scarves and hats when he was out in public, and somehow always seemed to be looking away when he caught someone's eye. He'd sneak into the radio studios wearing workmen's clothes to avoid the gaze of any fans or enterprising photographers looking to steal an elusive picture. But he always took just a moment, just one small moment, to revel in the adulation. For even though he would deny it, he adored the adoration. <sighs> but as all things, 
The era of his medium's dominance would soon come to an end, and he would have to learn to traverse the landscape of a brave new world. George Garland was Adam's agent and negotiated his contracts with all the major broadcasting companies. He knocked on the door of Adam's apartment, which was on the east side overlooking the park. After a pause, not nearly enough time for an occupant to reach the door, he knocked again. It wasn't that he was a rude man, at least not when it came to common manners. It was owing to the several cups of coffee taken with milk and six sugars each that he'd guzzled while at Columbia Broadcasting, negotiating a new contract for Adam. Adam opened the door and was taken aback as George pushed in and headed straight for the lavatory. After he'd relieved himself, he washed his hands, and realizing that this was the first time he'd ever actually used Adam's bathroom, was surprised, and fairly puzzled, to find that there was no mirror. Furling his brow, he left and found Adam sitting with his feet up on a coffee table in the sunlit drawing room, drinking hot water with lemon. Adam extended his hand in a gesture of offering toward the chair opposite the coffee table, rather than the chair that was situated next to him. George sat down, <clears throat> clearing his throat. How are you, George? Adam asked, almost in a whisper, and without making eye contact. <laughs> I'm ten percent of doing great, George responded, never moving his eyes from Adam's. Adam smiled and sipped his water. Columbia wants you exclusively. Adam still avoided George's constant gaze. Why would I want to do that? Why only let one person pay me when I could have many? Adam responded. Well, think of it this way. Would you rather get a few grains of gold prospecting each river in the burrows? Or would you rather find yourself a nice, plump gold mine in Midtown? Adam thought for a moment, looking out the window into the sun. Just think about it. No more working every night of the week. No more riding in ambulances to get across town to the other studio in time. And more money for it. Bring me the contract. So Adam became exclusive to Columbia Broadcasting. Many in the industry were incredulous at the deal they made with him, and were outraged that a company would pay a performer so hefty a quote. They feared that it would set a dangerous precedent, and that other performers would begin to demand similar deals. Their only hope was that it would be an abject failure, 
that Columbia would suffer for its financial blunder. Then everything would go back to the way it was, with the performers being valued about as much as the janitors. But it wasn't a blunder. Every night that Adam was on the radio for Columbia, they won far and away more listeners than all the other stations. Their sponsorship income tripled in the first six months. And as much as the audience loved Adam, people in his industry hated him. <laughs> many late-night drinking binges brought many drunken declarations of intent to have him murdered, framed in a scandal, anything. Of course, these were all forgotten once they emerged from the fog of their hangovers, but there was almost a tangible negativity being sent his way. Adam, meanwhile, seemed to withdraw. His policy of remaining hidden had become more of a compulsion. He even wore gloves everywhere he went, and by this point such adornments had fallen out of fashion for men. He couldn't explain himself well enough to make anyone understand, but it was a feeling of being exposed. If he thought people were looking at him, he'd get a nervous tremor that started in his shoulders and radiated down to his knees. On days and nights that he didn't have to be at the studio, he didn't even leave his home, and eventually he demanded that a small studio be built in his house so they didn't even have to leave to perform the broadcasts. Columbia wasn't about to refuse him, not when they were pulling in money like a whirlpool. In fact, anybody who would have been able to perhaps admonish him for his own social behavior was gone. His warden had passed away by then. And George would certainly say nothing, not when he had a 10% stake in a midtown gold mine. <sighs> the thing about gold mines, though... Once they've been stripped, they're nothing but deep, dark holes. Human innovation is a peculiar animal, and one that often consumes itself in its own insatiability. The radio was the greatest means of communication between humans since the telephone, but it would be marginalized by the emergence of television. Adam was in his prime when television proliferated. A misfortune for him to have not been born twenty years earlier 
and his skills would have made him a Mandarin in his field in the height of its power and influence, and for the duration of his career. But, enduring change is the burden of all people, of all eras. Might be a cliché, but the only consistency in humanity was its inconsistency. Television had been around for a few years, but only a few thousand people in the entire country had their own. But half a decade after the war, the number would grow to over six million. Ten years after that, it would be sixty. So it's really no wonder that Columbia decided they wanted their greatest star to be the face of their new television venture. Their competitors had a head start. They wanted Adam to do to television what he'd done to the radio. When George Garland heard their intention, he was simultaneously elated and distressed. Adam's uh, (laughs) self-imposed isolation would be a... Well, to say it would be an obstacle would be putting it mildly. (laughs) George took on the mindset of a dragon slayer, donning his three-piece Brooks Brothers like it was armor filling his pen as if it were a quiver, and grasping his briefcase as if it were a shield. He took to his checkered chariot and rode north to the dragon's den. He took a few moments in front of Adam's door to gather himself, and then he knocked. It took about a minute before the door finally opened, and then Adam didn't welcome him in. He just left the door ajar and retreated back into the apartment leaving George to push the door open himself. As he walked through the main hallway, Adam's voice emanated through the house, seeming to come from everywhere. George couldn't find the source. What do you want, George? George paused for a moment, considering his strategy. I've got some great news. Tell it to the Times. Oh, I think the trades would be more appropriate for this item. Well, what is it? You waiting for a nickel? Columbia wants to give you more money. Adam's voice fell silent for a moment. Don't bait me, George. Adam! There's a trap under there. What is it? (sighs) Television. George. I know, I know. I told him you wanted nothing to do with the picture box. But it's the future, Adam. They're pouring money into it. You are in the lucky position of getting to hold your cup under the spigot. Money isn't everything, George. It ain't nothing. I won't do it. Go and let it be known. Well, George began, it's not so simple as that, Adam. Adam didn't respond. The contract you signed. What have you done, George? What it was that George had done, or had rather failed to do, was to negotiate a contract that would require Adam to appear on Columbia's burgeoning television network. Adam directed George to go back to Columbia and tell them that he wasn't going to go on TV. In the past, this probably would have been the end of it. The president of CBS had been such a fan of Adam's, and he was so eager to keep him happy that he probably would have let him be. But he'd been ousted had been replaced by a president that saw his employees as tools, nothing more. And you don't leave your best tool in the box. 
He told George that Adam would appear on the new network, leading the program Persinium 60, which would perform condensed versions of popular dramas live on the air. His name was already being used to advertise it. See the face that goes with the voice. And the president assured George that if Adam refused, he would take him to court and he would take every single dollar he ever earned from Columbia. And his non-compete clause would prevent him from working for any other network in perpetuity. George advised Adam not to fight it. And then Adam fired George. But he could see he was caught in a trap. The only way to get out of it would be to play docile. He read over his contract, closely this time. And while it was clearly stipulated that he would have to appear on any future television programs that the network insisted upon, it did not state anywhere in what condition it was that he would be required to appear. This he would use to his advantage, and it would give him legal protection. When the broadcast light was on and Adam stepped into the studio with his face and crown shielded behind a mask. It was very bird-like in structure, the piece extending down the bridge of the nose coming to a very beak-like point, and it contoured back only falling inward slightly, keeping his eyes always cast in shadow. It was such a mask that even the shape of what it concealed was not betrayed. Joanna, come to bed, won't you? He spoke his first line, his voice unmistakably his and powerful in the small studio. The director and his fellow actors froze, unsure of how to proceed. <laughs> Margaret Lancome, who was playing Joanna, stared at him, her mouth agape, and her mind blank. Adam stepped closer to her and improvised his next line. My dear, a fire left too long unpoked will surely extinguish. Margaret looked off camera to the director, who had finally snapped out of his stupor and was giving her a cue to roll with it. She cleared her throat and responded, Oh, well, a poke won't do any good if you haven't got any wood. Adam smiled. I have a whole forest's worth. No, no, I'll stay up for a bit. She was finally getting back on script. Adam followed her. Are you still thinking about what Eloise said at dinner? Darling, you mustn't dwell on such trivialities. Trivialities? I can't believe she said that. And in front of everybody. What will they all think of us? Of me? They will all think that she's a busybody and jealous. They'll think we're keeping secrets. The rest of the show came off very well performance-wise. However, it was met with an outraged public who sent telegrams and called the network, demanding to know why Adam Onslow Isaacson wore a mask through his performance. They'd been promised a face to go with the voice they all loved. The network quickly sent a statement to the Times that the first show had experienced technical difficulties, and that come next week they would most assuredly see Adam Onslow Isaacson in all his born glory. The network's lawyers tried in vain to take legal action against Adam, threatening to sue him for breach of contract, until he pointed out to them his own findings in the contract. They were powerless to keep him from wearing the shroud. All they could do was to release him from his obligations to appear on the program. But the network president, a very vindictive man, would not. 
and so for the second week in a row, Adam appeared in a leading role on Presidium 60, hidden behind his mask. After the performance, he sat alone in his dressing room, staring at a crack in the wall that used to be concealed by the mirror he demanded be removed. The mask sat on the vanity in front of him, looking back at him. He caressed his face, feeling every contour, every, every ridge, every ripple, and feeling it made him to clench his jaw so tightly it popped out of place. He stood up with the pain rising in his face and started to walk to the door in a fit, but stopped short. He inched his way over and pressed his ear against the lacquered wood, listening. Just the thought that another human being might be somewhere on the other side of that door, anywhere in the world, sent a chill through his bowels. The thought that he might be seen, it terrified him. Like a child is terrified of the dark. He backed away from the door and rested his hand on the mask. He felt comforted as he felt its shape in his hand, its contours. He picked it up and drooped his head, softly guiding it into place. He took a deep and tranquil breath of air and exhaled, all trace of shaking evaporated. He pulled on his gloves and wrapped a scarf around his neck and chin and mouth, effectively covering every part of his face. And at once, he stood taller and walked... No, no, he strutted out of his dressing room. His chest once concave was now leading him convex. And after that, he wouldn't go anywhere without it. People would recoil when he came into their view. They were at once drawn by the mystery of what was beneath, but unsettled by the uncanniness of what concealed it. <laughs> and Adam could see it in every eye that held fixed on him as its head turned away. He fell into the corners, the periphery, spied but unseen. Over the weeks, the number of viewers for the program was steadily dwindling, even as they contrived ridiculous situations to justify Adam's mask, resetting one drama inexplicably at a masked ball, and another casting in the role of a thief disguised. And every week, Adam grew more and more miserable and more and more isolated. It got to the point that he would call George Garland on the telephone every night, just to speak with someone. He was the only person he really knew anymore, the closest thing he had to a friend. <laughs> George didn't take his calls for long. Finally, after two full weeks of no one speaking to him outside of character, Adam burst into the network president's office, desperate and begging. Please, for the love of God, please just let me go back to the radio. Not a chance, you little shit. 
the president replied. You're not going to get away with trying to stick to me in this network for so long and just get to waltz back to your little home studio. Come on, you're hemorrhaging money on this stupid fucking show. That's my business. And if I give you one fucking inch, every shitheel on the payroll from vice president to the goddamn janitor is going to think they can take a mile. Please. <laughs> not a chance. You will fulfill your contract, which you are subject to for three more years. And you will appear on every episode of any goddamn program I damn well please, funny mask or no. And by the time your contract is up, the public will hate you so much that you won't be able to get a gig anywhere. Not anywhere. Three more years. Adam kept replaying the phrase in his head as he rode the elevator down, down, down. It was an ordinary Monday morning. Nothing remarkable about it, really. Snow had fallen the night before, and the usually chaotic city had fallen under a hushed, frozen tranquility. Adam entered the studio for rehearsal. First actor there. He went to the director, who was talking with a producer about the set, and very nonchalantly told them that he would be appearing without his mask on this Friday's show. They were shocked to hear it, so Adam pressed on, asking for a moment at the start to address the audience. <laughs> they agreed immediately, lest he should change his mind at any resistance. And the moment Adam left to study his lines, the producer called the publicity department and told him to get the word out that Adam Onslow Isaacson would finally be appearing without his mask. Word spread throughout the network, and even the president was slightly skeptical of the news, felt victorious in his battle with his network star. Newspapers were utilized to their fullest extent with advertising, but semi-hourly announcements on their radio program seemed to reach the most. By Friday morning, all across the country, no other subject could even be broached in conversation without first having a say about Adam and his upcoming appearance. In fact, the show which aired later that night would hold the record for highest volume of viewers for many years when it was surpassed by the broadcast at the funeral for an assassinated president. It was nine o'clock, and the opening sponsor's spot played while Adam stood masked and on his mark in the darkened studio, awaiting his cue to begin his address. The stage director counted him down. Five, four, three... Two, one, and the lights around him started to rise. He was cast in a spotlight from in front of him, high above the floor, blinding him to all his surroundings. He began with a slight grumble to clear his throat. <clears throat> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Before tonight's performance, I 
wanted to take a few moments to explain what has been going on since the start of this program. You see, I was always comfortable being heard but not seen. I was forced into appearing on this show by the President of Columbia because a contract I had signed to continue bringing you what you loved on the radio contained a short clause that essentially made me an indentured servant, subject to his whimsy and rancor. I feared that if you good people saw my face, not only would you forget what you'd cherished about me before, but you'd recoil in disgust. When I was a child, I was angelic in voice and face. But as I grew, well... For you see, I was given a face for radio. And on the radio, I could be anyone. I could be your husband your college professor, your grandfather. It was up to you to cast me in your own narrative, decide what form I took in your own mind. That is why I donned this mask, to remain unseen. But it is clear to me now, what you truly want is me. And your hunger has grown so great that to deny you any longer should be an act of cruelty. Well, ladies and gentlemen, look upon me now. But be warned, you shall never be able to forget the grotesquerie you're about to witness. Adam raised his hands to the mask, and slowly raised it off of his head, revealing his sharp jawline, soft, full lips, and strong, aquiline nose. His eyes glowed in the studio lights, and even in black and white, it was obvious they were a striking blue. He had a perfect symmetry, and many people, women and men alike, for many years would comment regretfully on what a beautiful man he was. The expression on his face, however, shifted from a stony numbness to one of fear and of loathing. For a brief moment, the television became a mirror for every single person watching, as their own expressions took on a fear and loathing, as Adam produced a knife hidden in his waistband. I just want to go back to radio. These would be the last words that Adam Onslow Isaacson would ever utter on any broadcast of any kind. <sighs> he took his nose between the thumb and index finger of his left hand and brought the knife down on the bridge, sawing back and forth for what in reality was only a second or two, but felt like forever to all who were watching stunned and aghast in their homes. The engineers weren't fast enough to cut away from the feed before the nose was free of the face, and blood poured from the cavity down Adam's lips and chin and shirt front. Columbia broadcast its logo for the next 60 minutes. Adam was rushed to the hospital, where his life was salvaged from the dreg heap. They sewed his nose back on as best they could, but it was disfigured. Twisted. He sat up alone in his hospital bed at night listening to the city below outside of his window. He picked up his phone from his bedside table and asked the operator to dial a number for him. A droning buzz came through the receiver for what seemed an interminable length of time. He was about to hang up when he heard the opposite receiver pick up and a groggy George Garland mutter a salutation. George. 
George hawked some flint from his throat. <coughs> Who is this? What do you mean it's me? I don't know who you are, should I? It's me, Adam. George didn't respond for a moment. Adam? Adam Isaacson. Is this a joke? What's that supposed to mean? Adam. Yes, it's me. Sorry, I just... I... I didn't recognize your voice. Please consider these things in your judgments, and listen to the music of the inimitable Masako, whose notes dance to the turning of the earth. And now, 
we present a fragment of the raconteur's first recording, recovered from the ancient satellite. This was a fantasy. He'd seen it his entire life. From his childhood, watching his parents struggle no matter how extremely they toiled. And he saw it in university, where those with station were omitted from fulfilling the requirements which were mandatory to those who'd worked hard to get there. And now, as he moved through this highest choir of influence, his anger and disgust metastasized as he witnessed such raw, undiluted hypocrisy. The slop dropped in the trough for a population so immersed in deceit that they'd been effectively inoculated to its soul-corroding effects. Or at least numbed to them. He'd already made up his mind. If men would not live in harmony as they were, then he would make all men equal whether they liked it or not. He was going to tell a story.